Good morning. Welcome. Uh, don't worry, or is Charlene is not going to embarrass you, but she does have an announcement to make from the Grand Rounds Committee. So, um, so I'm not going to embarrass you yet. Um, so I just all I want to say is um, it's we have sort of gotten away from official um, evaluation of Grand Rounds, and we want to get back into it. So of course we're starting with our residents because there are guinea pigs for everything. So you guys will get within 72 not within within um, a day an evaluation form. It's really quick, and you'll have 72 hours to fill it out. And it's really really important that you fill it out. And we tried to make it as easy as possible. If you hate the form, please let me know or Kathy know, and we can uh, potentially adjust. Thank you. And we, uh, I think Kim would want to remind you that we, we don't, we are going to more consistently evaluate Grand Round speakers, but we do every spring like to give constructive feedback to our uh, graduating residents who are presenting the Grand Round. So this will allow us to do that. You might remember in the springs we often have little pink pieces of paper, but uh, please, please take this opportunity to start this. So welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for May 4th, uh, 2016. It is May, and um, we will continue our Grand Round series next uh, week with a couple of special uh, presentations also from colleagues who are joining us in an exchange program, a new and exciting exchange program from Royal Aberdeen Children's Hospital in Scotland. Um, today's uh, sort of up to some good is timely and appropriate uh, given Orr's career trajectory, Dr. Neighbor's career trajectory, that the, the pediatric intensive care unit, the PICU, just celebrated one full year without an unplanned extubation, which plates their rate at zero per 100, I think, uh, intubations. Yes, you can, you can start clapping. <laughs> down from a rate of two per 100 uh, when they initiated this quality improvement project. So, so excellent, um, excellent work. Um, but it is, to, it is today getting uh, exciting to kick off our graduating residence Grand Round series with uh, Dr. Neighbor, or his neighbor is a native of Pluterhausen in southern Germany, did I correctly pronounce that, um, who completed his um, medical degree at the University of Hamburg, uh, taking a very important trajectory where he spent time filling gas tanks, working in an assembly line, casting brake plates at the local Mercedes foundry to help uh, um, fund his uh, medical education. He spent time transplanting stem cells, doing some work in pediatric hematology, oncology, before joining us at the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock for his residency in June of 2013. Uh, looking back on his resident application, he noted at that time that he wanted to practice evidence-based medicine in a major research university medical center to become the highly capable, curious, and caring doctor needed to resolve some of the inequities that made him choose medicine in the first place. Um, it's not a surprise that he noted that at one point he had thought he would become a surgeon but it was perhaps the influence of his psychiatry and psychoanalyst parents that um, realized that he enjoyed um, some of the more um, interactive aspects of medicine. So um, you will see today that he, I think, has combined those interests, and he's going to specifically talk about his interests in technology and the work he is doing with the New England Pediatric De Device Consortium, and I think has found his calling as he will start in pediatric critical care UCSF. At Stanford, <laughs> at Stanford, the Bay Area, but at Stanford um, as as uh, as soon as this July. So, Ors, uh, take it away. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Sounds like it. Okay, thanks, Keith. Um, well, um, so it's, it's an honor to be here today. Um, uh, first, I have no disclosures to make. Um, so I want to start off by giving you uh, the objectives of this talk really quickly, um, identify and classify medical devices. It sounds kind of boring, it'll be interesting. Describe the regulatory function of the FDA and discover and, and appraise your own ideas. Okay, so um, I want to start off by 
giving you a quick um, sort of background on myself and, and how I come to go down that route. Um, so when I was six, I um, built an ant hive out of molding clay and plaster. It sort of looked a little bit like this. Um, my mind was more beautiful. Um, and so it had this sliding glass top, and it had these really organic channels. And everybody loved it, except the ants. Um, and so as I got a little bit older, I um, turned my attention to building computers for my friends and myself. And that was fun, and it was interesting. And it was also a valuable source of income. Um, but it sort of um, took me some more years. So in 2012, I had at that time already graduated from med school. And I was working at the pediatric um, stem cell transplant unit in Hamburg. And I saw this TED talk. This is a guy called Daniel Kraft. And he is a pediatric hematologist, oncologist. And he developed a tool called the marrow miner. And um, I don't really know what came of the tool, but um, this TED talk was really inspiring. And here was a guy, who, a physician, who sort of had developed a tool that would change his whole environment. And it was this you know, flexible thing that you could use to um, harvest bone marrow in a really efficient way. And um, so once again, there were other things that were more pressing. Uh, like moving to the United States and finding a place for um, myself and my family. Um, so it took me till my second year of residency that I, that I could really find an opening, um, how I could um, sort of get more of an understanding of this world, the, the world of, of pediatric or medical devices in general. Um, because I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be that physician that innovates and, and makes new devices. And so I don't know how many of you remember, um, but about two years ago, uh, Ryan Ratz and Rick Greenwald held their grand rounds in this very room, and they introduced the NEPDC. The NEPDC is an um, organization, New England Pediatric Device Consortium. It's an FDA-funded organization that um, helps to or helps um, startups and, and bigger companies that are developing devices specifically for the pediatric market. And why is that important? Because the pediatric market, as it is with any other, um, as it is for us in pediatrics, uh, classically, traditionally, has zero or very little return on investment. Um, and so with the help of my residency program, thanks, Kim, um, I initially became a reviewer for these guys and reviewed probably by now over 50 device proposals. Um, and then starting my senior year, I dove in a little bit deeper and became the first resident fellow, um, sort of specifically made for myself, um, this, this position. <laughs> um, but it allowed me to spend more time with the organization and really you know, talk to the engineers and talk to the entrepreneurs and, and get a little bit of a deeper understanding of what is going on there. And um, so today I'm here to sort of share with you some of the insights I had and also share with you some of the enthusiasm that I have developed for this field. And uh, I hope to spark or to ignite a similar spark in you guys uh, as this TED Talk did for me. So um, I want to start with a little agenda here. and. Um, we're going to talk about sort of current trends in do-it-yourself medicine. We're going to talk about the role of the FDA um, definition of a medical device, um, the FDA approval process. And um, you're going to finally get the results of the survey most of you have filled out. Um, it's going to show the interests that specifically healthcare providers have when they, when they look at a medical device. Um, and we're going to talk about how to do it yourself. Um, so, in January this year, I read this article in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's written by a guy called uh, Dr. Jeremy Green, who is a well-known professor of internal medicine and history of medicine. And in his article, Dr. Green sort of 
uh, talks about a time in the 20th century um, where physicians were well known to um, create their own medical tools. And he then goes on to contrast this to today's world where um, do-it-yourself stands more for the act of using a tool that's ready-made for you by the technology industry and using it at home to then diagnose yourself. So more for the act of diagnosing without using a physician. Um, and so let's talk about this, do-it-yourself medicine and, and current trends. The, the ever-accelerating tech industry, um, and in fact, the fusion of this uh, accelerating tech industry with the medical world has led to really fascinating developments that are completely changing the way we're delivering healthcare in this country. And we at DH are actually one of the forerunners when it comes to using those concepts, using machine learning, using um, um, remote sensing. Um, just look at sort of the Imagine Care um, system where we um, use remote sensors to track patients or, or, or humans' health at home, preventing them to become patients. Preventing, so seeing a trajectory, and we, 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 you know, there's this big Microsoft engine called Cortana that analyzes everything and then um, tells an RN, okay, so this guy is having high blood pressure for the past three days, we gotta intervene. And I sign up myself, I don't know how, how, how everybody else is doing, but this, uh, it's pretty exciting. Um, so, in fact, remote sensors are really big right now. And so there are tools that measure your blood pressure, that um, test and trend your blood sugar. There are, there are tools that um, um, check your urine at home. There are tools that um, check medication intake, compliance. This is particularly interesting because I think the, these chips are made of, out of 100% digestible products. So this patch picks it up when you take your blood pressure medication <laughs> and then your intestines digest it. Um, there's even the refractory eye exam that you can now do from the comfort of your home. And um, so often these, these products use sort of your smartphone for processing power. And who, who knows what a tricorder is? Anybody knows what a tricorder is? So a tricorder is this tool from Star Trek <laughs> um, that you could have magically wave over a body and it would give you a diagnosis within seconds. Um, so that sounds pretty exciting. And uh, the XPRIZE Foundation, in fact, uh, has put out a competition for uh, the first team to come up with such an invention. Um, $10 million. That's a pretty decent price, and um, obviously this tricorder is going to be uh, not quite as advanced as the Star Trek uh, tricorder, but um, it's going to diagnose about 13 conditions, which is uh, not a small um, thing to do. And so there's, it includes, you know, atrial fibrillation, anemia, UTI, pneumonia, those kinds of things. And believe it or not, they're in the final stages of judging. So 2017, we'll see what's, what's happening. Um, so if we are in, a, in, in, in the days that Dr. Green describes, um, developments, technological improvements were relatively low tech. And so the handy, handy physicians of the time could, with the help of the medical community, um, build their own cardiac telemetry devices using components from Radio Shack and build their cardiac telemetry device for 15 bucks instead of 1500. Um, nowadays, that isn't as straightforward anymore. Um, all, all devices have to undergo this rigorous FDA approval process. And so then DIY meant for the providers, today really is more for the consumer. And you know, all these things are so high tech, they're so miniaturized, just look at this. 
tinkering with that would really render it useless uh, rather than you know creating an improved product. Um, but there are some people who are able to build their own medical devices outside of the grasp of the FDA and the, and the approval process. The internet is the primary source. You can 3D print your own uh, prosthetic hand. Um, there's also, there are also instructions on the internet that um, allow you to build a transcranial direct current simulation device for everybody who wants to mess with their brain. Um, <laughs> and um, specifically with this, I think it's not hard to understand or to imagine that there is a significant risk for, for uh, things that aren't regulated by the FDA. But some of these products have, uh, or some of these crowdsourced uh, um, projects have, have really led to some amazing things. And so I just want to point out the story of a young guy called um, Daniel. And, and, and so it's really the story of Mick Eberling, the CEO of a company called Not Impossible, who went to Sudan to then set up 3D printers with the locals there and allowed them to um, print their own prosthetics for this war-torn country. Um, um, and so, given all I just said, um, it seems that DIY is nowadays either for the consumer or for a crowdsourced organization or crowdsourced people. In fact, in the end, it's also the consumer. Um, and so, it seems a little bit like DIY is dead for us as providers. Um, but I think DIY sort of consists of two components. One is sort of the do-it-yourself part, uh, do-it-yourself what others have done, but then also innovate yourself and change things. And so I think we as providers can still do that. We um, just have to do it a little bit differently, and we have to comply with the rules that the FDA um, gives us. So what is a medical device, and why do we need the FDA to regulate it? Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, so the role of the FDA in, in medical technology is it's, a, it's an organization, a governmental body, that was created about 100 years ago, a little bit over. And um, the, it really is a story of many, many tragedies that led to the FDA regulating medical devices in a way that we know today. Um, and what really, the, the straw that, that broke the camel's back um, was this little plastic chip. Does anybody know what this is? Yeah, exactly. This is the Dalton Shield. So this was the fourth IUD that hit the US market uh, in 1970. And um, you know, the people at the time had realized that if you put anything in the uterus, um, there's going to be a little inflammation reaction, and these white blood cells just eat sperm like nothing else. And so um, they created these little plastic chips, and there you go, you have your IOD. The problem with this device was not the chip, although that looks pretty nasty. Um, <laughs> the problem with this device was the string. The string was so porous that it allowed bacteria to ascend from the vagina into uterus and cause scarring, overwhelming infections, leading to the death of at least 18 women, mostly from septic abortions. But millions were affected, and this company, H. Robbins, who also creates Robitussin, by the way, or it did at the time, now it's sold. Um, this company uh, declared bankruptcy shortly after um, because there was a, a massive onslaught of lawsuits. Um, but in the wake of this tragedy, and many others before, uh, the FDA got the mandate to regulate F uh, uh, medical devices. And now, what, what, is a, what is a medical device? Um, I want you guys to, I want to go with you through a couple of pictures, um, and I want your thoughts on what a medical device is. So get your little clickers, and you click A if you think this is a medical device, therefore regulated by the FDA, or you click B if you think 
This is not a medical device. All right, everybody ready? So let's start. This is an MRI. And click A if you think this is a medical device, and B if you don't think so. All right, come on, some more responses here. 39, 40. Okay, so let's see. Yeah, so um, the left means yes, the blue one. Um, so absolutely, the MRI machine is a medical device. The, the, what it, it says it can you know, diagnose certain conditions, it scans your brain. There is really no role for, any, for, for the MRI anywhere else in this world but the medical field. How about this, a cardiac stent? <laughs> All right, so let's see. Yes, absolutely, everybody almost got that right. And um, <laughs> so a cardiac stent clearly is a medical device. It's, it's, it claims to, you know, it, it treats coronary heart syndrome, right? You inject it, you put it into your coronary, and um, nowhere else in this world you can use it other than the field of medicine, most likely cardiology only. But um, how about this, urinary test, uh, uh, urinary test strips? I think I have to wait for the 41. <coughs> okay. Um, so, ah, it gets more tricky, huh? So, yeah, urinary test strips are a medical device. They are regulated by the FDA. And, and, and why is that? Because urinary test strips help in diagnosing certain conditions. Um, and so you can see that it sort of boils down to you know little things they they say they can do or things they pretend to can to do. How about this Fitbit? Is a Fitbit a medical device? Ah, yeah. I think so. Most of you got this right. Uh, a Fitbit is not a medical device. All it does is it counts your steps and 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 tells you you're you're so and so active. Um, how about this? Male condom. Okay. All right. So more people said no, no, no. That's not a medical device, but it is. It is a medical device. It's it's heavily regulated. And uh, for a good reason, right? Because it says it's going to protect STDs, and if you use it, you'd rather want that to really be true. <laughs> um, how about this, a medic, uh, hospital gown? <clears throat> ah, no, that's not a medical device. Uh, it is. It is a medical device. And that's so weird, right? But yes, it is a medical device because you know there are certain characteristics it has to have. It has to absorb sweat and whatnot, and, and, and it protects the patient easy access from, from behind. Um, and so if a hospital gown is a medical device, how about scrubs? Are they medical devices? Hospital gown is a medical device. Um, hospital scrubs are not, and that's uh, confusing. But uh, scrubs don't really, you know, touch the patient, and they are more a fashion statement today. Um, so, how does the FDA regulate these medical devices? Um, the FDA's definition of a medical device. Sorry, this is really one of two slides with text. Um, an instrument which is intended for use in the diagnosis, the cure, the treatment, or prevention of disease, and which does its intended purpose not through chemical action within the body. So that last section here differentiates it from pharmaceuticals. Um, that first action here, that first paragraph here, tells you exactly what a medical device is. It is something physical that you can, that, that, that claims to either diagnose, treat, or prevent um, disease or diagnosis. Um, 
And so this is all it really boils down to. A Fitbit never said it's, it's, it's treating coronary heart syndrome, although probably somehow underneath it, it suggests that it could. Um, but as soon as it would claim that, it would become regulated by the FDA. And the FDA classifies these medical devices according to the perceived risk to the patient. And so there are three major risk stratifications here. Um, one, low risk. Two, medium. And three, high risk. And so if you look at the things that we just um, um, looked at before, the stent would be a high risk device. You, you, act, you actively you know, poke someone, you go into the body, you put it in there. Um, there's a lot of risk associated with that. MRI is a class two device, less of a risk. And um, the other two, most of the devices are class two. Um, and then hospital gown, I think everybody would agree, that's kind of a class one device. Um, so the FDA approval process there is one thing about it. It only states that this device is safe and effective, at least as effective as whatever they looked at before. Um, it doesn't say anything about is this a good device? Is, device, is this device um, going to be lucrative? Or is there a need for that device? Um, and so I think that's where we, as physicians, play a huge role. Who better, maybe, but the patient um, than a physician to say, there's a need for that device? Or including that physician I just said, obviously other medical health professionals as well. So I want to share with you the results of a survey that I conducted earlier this year. And I think a lot of you have participated and I really appreciate that, so thank you. Um, so I conducted the survey, I think in March, and I wrote to about 375 healthcare professionals. And I had 202 responses, which is a really good response rate, 54%. And, um, you know, going through those, 90 were medical uh, doctors, 74 were nurses, 34 other medical providers, so PAs and Ps, and then four were caregivers. And right now I'm conducting a survey that specifically wants, uh, assesses caregivers to get a little bit better understanding because this is obviously very heavily skewed towards the field of medicine. Um, so it was only the field of pediatrics that I surveyed. And as you can see, pretty much everybody was to some degree represented. Um, but critical care, neonatology, and general pediatrics had much more responses than in any of the other fields, which may be part of you know, the, the uh, geographic location I surveyed. So. Um, all of these participants got 19 devices to choose from, and they, they, could, they, they, were, they were supposed to choose the, the three that they thought had the biggest impact in, in pediatrics. And so those were the, the 19. So this is a really busy slide, and, and let me guide you through it a little bit. Um, so this big pie is made up out of all the 19 devices. And um, the 17% up here is not insulin, it's an insulin pump. Apologize for that. Um, so 17% thought it w insulin pump really revolutionized um, pediatric care. 15% loved CPAP. Um, I think everybody in pediatrics likes CPAP, right? Um, and then, you know, there were other big chunks, so a spacer device was well liked, Mickey button, microtainer those sorts of things. The chunk up here, the other, were people that um, chose, instead of writing, uh, using or choosing one of those 19 devices, um, that wrote the, they wrote their own answers. And so that's chronically 
are classically a little hard to analyze because you have to go through all the, all the text. Um, so what I did was I created a word cloud. And what it seems to show is that a lot of it is oxy, oximetry, oxy something, <laughs> pulse maybe to um, Drager, cannula, ventilator. So a lot of respiratory stuff. People like respiratory things. <laughs> and um, which is not surprising, right? Because we in pediatrics, that's, that's the problem we see most often is respiratory. Um, but the, the, the real the really important question, the question that I think gives us the most information from the survey, at least um, in, my, in my opinion, was the next question. And in the next question, I asked everybody to say why they chose that device. Why was it, why was it a good device? Why did it make such a, such a, such a big impact? Um, and so there were five, six choices. It saves time, it saves money, uh, improves outcomes, easier to use, quality of life. Um, and we are medical providers, right? So it's not surprisingly that 30% down here, if you don't see that well, big chunk down here is we want this device to improve outcomes. That's why we like it, or improve, it improved outcomes. And then another 22% down here is um, it improves quality of life. So we really care about our patients, right? We want them to have a good device. We want them to do better. Um, the 20% up there on the left are this device is really easy to use, which is also, you know, uh, maybe I myself as a, as a physician also care about if this device is easy to use, because then I can use it more often. Um, but also, you know, this also is the patient who has to use it maybe at home. Um, one thing that I learned from doing this survey, I should have probably chosen to write um, uh, mortality and morbidity instead of outcomes. Um, but I think everybody who answered this survey knew what I meant by outcomes. And so the next question was, um, what do you guys think is really needed? What, what do we need in the, in the field of pediatrics? And um, the overwhelming majority liked monitoring systems. And that's I think, goes along with what I said earlier, right? Um, predicting. A, a condition before it happens, monitoring at home maybe. Um, those are all things that um, would improve healthcare and healthcare delivery. Um, and so how can we meet those goals that we have as, as medical providers? How can we improve those outcomes? How can we improve the quality of life? And how can we reclaim that DIY um, shape our own own devices for for our underserved world of pediatrics, and I want to share with you some of the uh, lessons and pearls that I learned at the at the NAPDC. Um, so the the first the first um, thing, and this is probably the most important thing, <coughs> is something called the innovative mindset, okay? This consists out of two parts. The first part is that we need to believe that we can change things. We have to believe that. Um, and the second part is that we go into situations with open eyes and try to um, constantly wonder, is this how it's supposed to be? or Maybe can we make it better? Can we change it? And so for some time, there has been this concept of Vuja Day in the uh, innovation science. And yes, there is a whole you know, science community around innovation. Um, this phenomenon called Vuja Day <laughs> is the exact opposite, obviously, of deja vu, which everybody knows. Um, and Vuja Day was sort of um, first mentioned by George Carlin. Very funny guy. Um, 
and then uh, picked up by the sort of the, the innovation science people. So Bob Sutton, who's a pretty famous um, professor at Stanford School of Business, calls Vujaday. Uh, Vujaday happens when you enter a situation you've been in a thousand times before, but with a sense of being there for the first time. Um, or in Marcel Proust's words, the real act of discovery consists not in finding new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. And so I want to do a little uh, puzzle with you. Um, and uh, I want to look at these nine dots with you for an hour now. Um, <laughs> I want you guys to look at these nine dots and um, draw a line with your finger uh, to connect all of them without lifting your finger. Um, and you, the, the, so you can't do any curves or any funny things. Um, the least lines um, possible is the goal. So for example, this would be one way to do it. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of time. I'm going to give you, um, here's, a, here's a little hint before you do it. OK. Um, so I'm going to give you 30 seconds. And then we'll move on. So your, your, your question is the least number of lines. Yeah, least, number, least, least number of lines. Least distance that those lines No, are. just the least number of lines. <clears throat> OK, I think we're good. So um, who can do it under four lines? Or who can do it under five lines? There you go. Want to say it? Yeah. Yeah. And then what? Um, and then um, down to the left. Yeah. And then what? Um, and then up to the middle. OK. I went a little further. Awesome. Very well done. Yeah, so this was not about you know testing intelligence. This was about thinking outside of the box because everybody thinks, hey, I gotta stay in, in this, you know, in this box of nine points and I can't sort of leave that box. But that's what it's all about. You should you should see um, or we all have to see every situation anew um, if we want to really change it. And so I want to talk about the five lessons. <laughs> I made that up. It's not really a thing, but um, <laughs> um, those are those are sort of the. Um, sorry, my watch has been going on for thirty seconds. So those are the things that I learned from you know working more in that field, and um, those are the things that if you have a new idea, you should use to vet that idea. And um, once you go through all those five steps, you'll probably be able to share it with others and really make it happen. So the top five lessons, um, and I'm going to give you little stories to make them a little more digestible. So about a couple of weeks ago, I was in the hospital. Um, as I'm often, and I, and I thought about, hey, wouldn't it be great to uh, have a patient guidance system? It could use sort of the hospital's infrastructure for Wi-Fi and then extrapolate the position of the patient and then guide the patient to whatever outpatient appointment or whatever they have, saves money. We could even like, you know, as soon as the patient goes into the building, it's, he's getting pre-registered, no need to check in at the desk. Um, so the first thing you do when you have an idea is you type it into Google. And um, in, my, in my case, uh, uh, there were like six results. Okay, so, so there, were, there were already plenty of people doing that. Um, and but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're stupid. It just means that you're having a good idea and someone else has just been there before you. 
Um, if you're lucky and you don't um, uh, get any results that are fitting, and you always get results, um, you can type it into something called Google Patents. You just type in Google Patents, it'll guide you there. It's essentially the same search engine. It just scans all the, all the uh, United States patents and international patents, too. Um, so your idea has to be really novel, okay? It has to be new um, or make something really a lot better um, in order to be successful. Um, and then I want to go back to my med school. When I was a surgery medical student, medical student in surgery, um, I saw the surgeons sort of, you know, pulling down these lights and adjusting them over the field. Occasionally, you have to pull it a little bit deeper. You'd bump your head, or you'd, you know, contaminate yourself if you're missing that little sleeve there over the handle. Um, and I thought, ah, I got it, I got it. Here's a million dollar idea. I'm gonna develop these self-moving OR lights. Um, the surgeon will have a little button on the floor and, and they'll automatically arrange to um, the operating site. Um, and then I thought a little bit more about it and I thought, oh yeah, great, not a button on the floor. Um, it should be a voice control. And uh, so I thought about this for a really long time and I, um, made sure not to talk to anybody about it. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody who could have possibly helped, possibly helped me for sure. Um, and so it took a really long time until I finally talked to a friend and businessman, former businessman, um, and then realized that in order to, you know, put these self-moving OR lights into an operating theater, um, the whole theater had to be taken apart. Um, Kind of like it's kind of like building a new Da Vinci robot into your um, so considerably costly and and you know in reality probably not that very frequent. Um, so what I want to exemplify is that you have to have a receptive ecosystem. You have to have a place, um, and you have to have an environment that works for your um, design. Um, and then, I don't know how many of you have heard our neonatologist Tyler speak about his Billy Rubin project, but he allowed me to talk about it. And so, on one of his many trips to Africa, he, 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 he was thinking, um, how can we uh, have people in a low research setting um, better monitor and trend Billy Rubens? And so he came up with this idea, hey, why don't we use smartphones? Everybody in Africa has a smartphone. Yeah, they do. Um, and um, why don't we use that to track maybe transcutaneous bilirubin, because that technology exists, and we, maybe we can use it there. And so he partnered with these people at Thayer, and um, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll build something really sleek, low, cost efficient, and uh, preferably maybe an app. Um, and then sort of they started working on this, and they put a lot of work in it. And at one point they realized, hey, we need like a second light source, and we need that kind of angle and, and that kind of light fracture. And, and so what they ended up was like with this really big, funky device that um, was really expensive and didn't really work. Um, so your technology has to be ready, and your technology has to be the right technology for the, for the right field. Right? So for something in Africa, you want it to be really low-tech, or if it's high-tech, really cheap. Um, but this also touches on a really, uh, another really important point, and that's the point of team building. Um, so when I was reading all these uh, proposals at the NUPDC, I realized that really those proposals made it to the second step that were... Um, composed out of a team that did what they were trained to do. So a good team was comp composed out of a clinician who did sort of the medical stuff, the medical thinking, a, an engineer who did designs, technology, and an entrepreneur um, who did uh, you know, the business aspects. And that was just way more effective than just a physician with a great idea. Um, and the last, but 
really important point, unfortunately, a little bit more mundane, is that you have to have someone who's going to pay for it. Um, and so in our field of pediatrics, that's always a little bit of a challenge. It could be the user, it could be hospitals, it could be insurances. You know, in pediatrics, it's often uh, centers for Medicare and Medicaid services, CMS, um, because most of our kids are insured by them. Um, but everybody has to get some form of funding. So you have to you know, look into, uh, am I going to get paid at the end of this when I have this device? And who's going to pay for it uh, during this process? So going through those five, five ideas, with uh, five steps with your, with your idea uh, is a, is a seem, to me, is a, is a pretty effective vetting process. Um, so where else can you go with your idea? Resources. Um, here in Hanover, we have the Dartmouth Entrepreneurial Network, the DEN. Um, that, you know, they have a lot of people uh, that have done business before and that can uh, give you some clues. Um, the NAPDC obviously is a, is a fantastic resource, but your idea usually has to be a little bit more advanced. Um, and TREAT is the partner organization of the NAPDC and deals more with sort of rehabilitational devices, but has a really great video resource uh, data bank that you can access. Um, and then if you work at Dartmouth, you can also go to the te uh, technology transfer office, um, and they usually retain some of your IP, intellectual property, um, and but help you quite a bit. Um, there are also companies that will, you know, get you through all those hoops, but they usually, you know, either retain some IP or they want to get paid or they want to get paid up front. Um, so... I don't want to recommend any of those or endorse any of those. Um, when I went through my survey, when I went through all the answers that I had received, um, there was one answer that particularly stuck out to me, stood out to me. I worry about technological advances increasing healthcare disparities. Um, and so going back to sort of Dr. Green, he seemed to have similar concerns. He was <clears throat> lamenting that back in the day, DIY was sort of a thing that everybody could do. And nowadays, you have to fork out 100 or 200 or 300 or 500 bucks to then electronically record your heart rate, heartbeat. Um, so we all know about the socioeconomic chasm in our society. Um, and there's there's no doubt that you know, new technologies will first benefit the wealthy. Um, but I think that technology over time has a tendency to get um, um, more economic and in the end will, will benefit all of us. Um, and, and, and I want to end with sort of paraphrasing the X Prize, X Prize that competition uh, founder, um, Peter Diamandis, who said, um, the banker on Wall Street um, in the 90s had his clunky big uh, cell phone in his Mercedes-Benz, um, and nowadays there are more cell phones in the United States than citizens. So I believe that technology is our chance to overcome socioeconomic boundaries. Um, and especially in the field of pediatrics, finally deliver uh, better care to more. Thank you. <laughs> I'll just quickly say thank you to my wonderful wife and my, my family, and then my mentors, Shalene, who came up to me on my first day and told me, I really like Germans, I have married one. <laughs> <laughs> And then Matt, who's, who's helped me tremendously with the research, um, and, and Omar, who's left, and Ryan, who has helped me with the NAPDC work. Um, my, my residency program, the NAPDC, thanks for coming, guys. Um, and then you guys for listening. Thank so, you. yeah. Questions? Ryan. So, uh, thanks for us, that was fantastic. Um, I think a lot of us in academic medicine 
are very skeptical of industry and companies that um, they don't have an altruistic purpose. And can you maybe comment on has your experience with the NEPDC shifted that, altered that, or can you comment on the need to partner with industry? Yeah, so um, you're right. I mean, you know, economics are economics are economics. And so in the end, it all boils down to um, generating a profit. Um, I think it's slightly different if you're interested in developing a device for the pediatric market because the return on investment is just in general really not that huge. Um, but in order to um, create new technology, there needs to be someone who's paying for it. And in the end, that means that we have to partner with the people that have the money. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that people who you know, want to create wealth uh, for themselves or their shareholders are going to do the wrong thing. They may still want to create a great product for us. And um, I think it becomes tricky if the product is overpriced and um, if it's just um, um, being used to sort of exploit. Um, and I don't know um, if we can always sort of prevent that. I, I think specifically in drugs, we, there seems to be um, quite some tragedies going on. But um, if we don't innovate and if we don't partner with industry um, or um, partner with engineers and entrepreneurs, the technological advances will just not really happen. Um, thanks, Urs. Um, uh, I think you were preparing for your own TED Talk with your new five things and whatever, so I hope we all see you up in TED someday. Um, I think that as you were going through the five, your five, the Urs fives, yeah. um, it really struck me that um, how globally applicable um, that is to um, not just devices, um, but so much of what we do, um, and trying to draw on, um, thank you, trying to draw on um, what's already there um, and sort of repurpose it or um, put it, you know, try to have it do something different. And I wonder if you have any um, thoughts about um, starting there. Instead of starting, like, you sort of presented these as an order, um, and uh, I wonder if you have thoughts about if you sort of rearrange the order and, and how, to, um, how to think about it from a not sort of brand new idea, but from sort of what's here and how could we better use it or better think about it in a different context or whatnot. Do you have mm -hmm. thoughts about that? Well, so um, I, don't, I didn't mean to present them sort of in order. So um, all of these things have to sort of happen at the same time, um, or at least in some close proximity to each other. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, team building is a huge component of our daily lives. Um, and, and we need to figure out if we can use the technologies we have in maybe the environment we're going to work in. Um, but it's sort of, I, I, what I also want to emphasize, though, is that you, I want to go into a new situation sort of with this feeling that I can change things. And I want to go into situations with um, this, um, these naive eyes, you know, seeing things and then possibly changing them. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Um, I was thinking, so the, the comment about disparities was my, my comment, actually. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder, thinking about sort of situations like that, like you were talking about um, sort of the billiard and th you know, Tyler's billiard. Mm -hmm. thing, uh, how, how can we think about things from the perspective of, um, of sort of those, those needs as we start off um, and, and pull everything together? Yeah. Um, so how do you see telemedicine playing into this? Because I think that's where we borrowed a technology from, you know, FaceTime, um, and apply it to medicine. Um, yeah. I think, uh, especially in, in the United States, which is 
such a huge country with you know, vast areas that are really sparsely populated, I think telemedicine will play a huge role. Um, it gets sort of tricky when uh, the physical exam, maybe except the visual inspection, um, which is possible by telemedicine, but it gets tricky when you uh, make a diagnosis just by using a physical exam. So you need someone on the other side of the telemedicine receiver um, who can give you a reliable and good clinical exam. And you may be able to sort of guide that person. But I think, you know, we are building this huge center here in, in um, here at Dartmouth, uh, sort of partnering with this group in South Dakota um, to do exactly that, right? To have an additional set of eyes. And that's not only for rural um, United States, it's also for in-hospital care. You know, if you're um, if you're in the PICU at night and uh, maybe your attending isn't there or is coding another patient in another room or something, it may be nice to have another set of eyes up there who can, you know, tell you, okay, um, have you given a liter of normal saline yet or something, you know? Um, so um, I've seen it work in the in the emergency room here. It was sort of interesting, um, but it becomes more applicable if. Um, if I think it becomes more applicable in when we have to include sort of larger swaths of, of uh, land. Um, and it may, hopefully, it'll reduce um, not only cost, but also sort of patient um, comfort and safety. Because if you have a child that's really sick and you have to drive two hours to your next ER, then maybe having the opportunity to dial into a hospital's network to at least, you know, um, give you some initial help and step that may be really valuable. Um, one comment and one question. For those of you who got this, um, you may fill it out, but we really, really want you to fill out. Shalene and I would really like you to fill out the survey monkey that's going to come to you. Um, Joan Devine is going to send it, so look for an email from her. It should come out within the next 24 hours. So fill it out, but we won't be taking a look at this very much. And for those of you who immediate gratification, next week we'll have a barcode that you can scan and do the survey immediately. Some of us aren't really going to do that, but some of you I know will. And then my question to you, so Ors, thank you for leading off our residents, um, which I'm sure it's going to be a great next five weeks of resident-led talks. I'm really looking forward to it. My question to you is that pediatrics, um, device development, drug development, pharmacy advancement often um, to me feels like a poor stepchild. We don't have the funding. Our return on investment is not going to be huge from a monetary standpoint. Um, yeah. We may have 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 kids will benefit from this. We're right. certainly not going to have the next Millions. generation of cardiac stents, which will benefit, you know, 75% yeah. of men in America at some point. Yeah. Um, so how, is there any advancement um, nationally, advocacy nationally, regionally, to say pediatric device development is really important, it's really critical for the future and the health of our children in this country? Yeah, although, um, like so many things in pediatrics, it's, it's unfortunately a little underfunded. So the, the FDA, uh, the, the NEPDC is one of those uh, projects. So it's, a, it's an FDA effort to trigger device development and support device development in the pediatric field. Um, and there's also um, human, so this, this regulatory pathway that I showed you, um, or, or didn't show you, but so here I, I can show you. Um, this regulatory pathway gets really complicated. And um, depending on what kind of class you're in, it can take lots and lots of money and time. Um, and so um, there are exceptions if you have a small number of patients. So uh, humanitarian device exemptions can get you through a process really fast, really quickly. Um, and so there is a way to save money if you have less than 4,000 patients a year. Um, so there are efforts um, to change that. Um, I don't know where, you know, uh, nobody, I think nobody can say where we are going as a whole nation in terms of how we deliver health care. 
Um, but I think if we go to a population-based approach, then pediatrics will probably at one point be something that's maybe a little bit better funded because the changes you make early on in life will reflect a lot about uh, on your on your health later in life. So my hopes are um, that funding will get better in pediatrics if you know as we're moving ahead to a, a, a different way of healthcare delivery. And Orsh, you are one step closer to graduation. <laughs> Dr. McMillan is next Wednesday. So join us again and have a good day, everyone.